Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. Welcome to the Woman Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Jen Via Vicencio, an OB-GYN in Michigan, about pregnancy during the COVID-19 pandemic. We are especially grateful that Dr. Via Vicencio has taken time out of her busy schedule to talk about something so important during this unprecedented time and really an area that has very little information available. So hi, Dr. Via Vincencio. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. So first, could you provide a little bit of details about your background, like your education and training and what you do now? Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. And hi, everyone. I'm a Cuban-American OBGYN. I grew up in Miami, Florida. I went to medical school at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine, and then I trained in OBGYN at Brown University in Rhode Island. I also recently completed a family planning fellowship, as well as a master's of public policy at the University of Michigan. I practice the full scope of OBGYN and have a particular interest in physician messaging for social change and utilizing the reproductive justice framework to inform health policy. Thank you. So the other question we always ask our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? I love this question. I am a helper. I have always been, and the value of justice has always been a huge catalyst in my life. My mother is a retired nurse, and so she always instilled the idea that I should leave this world better than I found it. And because of this, I'm called to provide healthcare, support, compassion, and empathy through my work as a physician to anyone who might need my help. It's also critically important to me to continuously evaluate power dynamics, um, especially those that define the physician-patient relationship, and to ensure that I'm guided by people's lived experiences. The people I care for are the experts in their own lives. And so I'm driven to ensure that their healthcare, as well as the greater healthcare system, is always focused on a shared decision model and focusing on patient needs rather than the system's needs. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I loved what you said, the, the whole power dynamic. That's absolutely what we are about at Women Centered Health. So that was beautiful. I love that question too. So like we said today, we're going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and pregnancy or maternity care. So let's jump right in. So the first question we wanted to ask is one of the challenges in communicating with patients about COVID is that there's really so much that is unknown. So how are you dealing with this challenge in your practice. This is one of the biggest challenges that I faced, and it's been a huge learning curve over the last uh, couple of months with the pandemic. And so for me, thinking about this, there's really been two majorly important aspects to helping patients through this time. So the first is conveying the evidence-based recommendations that we do have and working through what we do and don't know from a scientific perspective, and then working with families to navigate the emotional, psychological, and sometimes even physical stressors that are brought on by this unprecedented life-altering event in people's lives. In terms of logistics, the first thing that I do is a lot of listening. I ask a lot of clarifying questions, and I try to establish some sort of baseline for where the particular patient or person or or even family is in terms of their understanding of COVID-19. As healthcare providers know, people come in with a variety of levels of understanding. And so getting a sense of where they are and what information they need is critical to that interaction. It is really tough as a provider because the available information is changing daily, if not hourly. And so keeping up with that onslaught of information, digesting it down into useful and practical tidbits for my patients, and then conveying that has been quite the challenge. Communicating to people that the rapid and sometimes contradictory changes in recommendations coming from some, you know, our administration or the CDC or other resources, it's not necessarily a result of incompetence or not knowing, but it really is part of the scientific method and that we're having ongoing data collection. And that's been a really critical part of helping people understand that why 
things are changing and recommendations are changing so swiftly. I've leaned heavily on my professional society, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, also known as ACOG, which has done an incredible job at synthesizing the evidence and creating timely recommendations for providers. And additionally, my institution has really done a ton of work to support pregnant patients during this time, including converting over to high quality telehealth for prenatal visits, as well as implementing programs like Stay Home, Stay Connected, which offers an interprofessional online support group for pregnant patients at various stages in their pregnancy. On a more personal level, both my patients and myself have done a lot of collective grieving and processing about this. Together, we've talked about how my relationship with them have changed and how their relationship with the healthcare system has changed. And we've talked about how hard this has been on our own lives and our families' plans. And we've strategized together really how to navigate the daily decisions about going to the grocery store, who can see their kids, and when to see our parents again. The silver lining of it has been a really, really nice community aspect um, with myself and the patients because we're sort of going through all of this together. So it sounds like there's really been this piece of vulnerability that's happening between you and your patients, but also you and your colleagues. And how do you see that either enhancing or just maybe in general impacting the relationships or the quality of care that is being delivered? Absolutely. I think what this pandemic has done for a lot of people is then a wake up call to the US healthcare system, both in our public health care system, and we've you know, realize that it's woefully underfunded and underutilized and that our safety net is nowhere near safe enough for so many people, especially communities of color, immigrants, those with disabilities and people working hourly jobs. And so at a more sort of um, micro level at the physician level, it's been a challenge to kind of understand and take a step back and realize that we don't have all the answers and figure out how we can communicate that in a way that is still with confidence and with the understanding that we are offering our patients some sort of care that's not just, this is what the study that we've had for 10 years says, and we know exactly what to do. And so that's been a big piece of this and certainly challenging from uh, a professional standpoint. So you talked about just kind of the different conversations that you're having with your patients and who can they see and, you know, trips to the grocery store. Can you kind of give an example of some of those conversations with a little bit of detail, like the questions that you're getting and also what you're saying? Sure, absolutely. So there's been sort of two buckets of questions. The first has been how can I access healthcare? And is it safe for me to come to your office? Is it safe for, you know, I need to get this blood work and for my pregnancy? Is it, or I need this ultrasound? Is it safe for me to do that? And then adding a layer onto that, I don't have any childcare. I used to have my parents take care of my kids when I went to doctor's appointments. And now I'm afraid that I don't want to expose my parents. I don't want to expose my kid. I haven't seen them in three months. I don't, can I bring them to the healthcare system? And so there's been a lot of navigating sort of social issues that intersect so intimately with how people access healthcare. And then there's been the stuff where patients will ask me, you know, how do I go to the grocery store and how can I shop safely? And I say, you know, that's the question that we're all asking. And I say, this is a, you know, an article that I found from the CDC. And this is, here's another one from NPR that I think is really interesting. And then I also, have been really candid with them and told them that what I've been doing and what makes sense for me personally. And then we try to work through their personal situation because ultimately we have to make these decisions at a personal and family level. And so what works for me may not work for them, but at least they know that I'm thinking through these things as well and not just telling them they should do something and it's not something that I'm also experiencing. I feel like one of the, I don't see patients, but I I, you know, just getting sort of a tap on people I know. And then also like seeing things on social media, I've noticed a lot of risk issues. So how people are perceiving risk. And I'm sure that factors into your conversations. But I feel like there's such a spectrum of this is not a big deal if you're healthy to I'm not going to see anybody or leave my house, you know, no matter what. And so you kind of see this like, I know, you know, for Nicole and I personally, like we struggle with daycare, for example, and our children's mental health and our mental health with the risk of seeing people. How do you sort of frame those conversations, I guess, when when you're talking with patients? What you're talking about makes me think about my one of my best friends who just had a baby and her baby has yet to meet any of her family members. And she's like, how is that going to impact my baby's development? And she's a doctor and she's asking those questions. And so we're all sort of navigating that 
together. The way that I approach or frame those questions is I, as I mentioned, I do a lot of listening. So it's really presumptuous to assume that I understand what risk means to somebody. And like, quote unquote, in terms of the way that we talk about risk in medicine doesn't necessarily play with a lot of my patients. Sometimes leaving their kid, their eight-year-old at home is less risky than bringing them on the bus for four hours to the healthcare clinic or them not being able to come to an appointment because they're risking losing their job. And their job means that they have to be there because they can't put food on the table. And their job doesn't let them wear a mask or, you know, all of these stories are things that I've heard. And assuming that we understand what risk means to patients is a huge mistake. And so making sure that we're asking questions and really trying to understand as best as we possibly can our patients' lived experiences and how all of this is intersecting with their lives at this time has been really important. And I guess it's been a double-edged sword not having information because we've just been able to navigate, well, this is how we're going to do it based on the information that we have. You know, you're going to take the bus, here's some hand sanitizer, and you're going to do the best you can to get to the grocery store and try not to, you know, try to stay six feet away from each other, that sort of thing. But there's been very little clear scientific pathways on how to do this. And so it's really opened up for a lot of providers the need to really engage with patients' social needs as well, which is sometimes I think missed in other care. I think those are very beautiful points that you bring up, this need to not assume someone's risk or perceived risk. And so what I'm wondering is if you have some questions that you personally use or have found that work well for you to get at a a good gauge of someone's perceived risk or how do you get that values assessment? At the beginning of this, it was everyone didn't know what was going on, right? We were all trying to figure it out together. And so I was saying like, how are you approaching this issue? And now I think that we're a couple of months in, especially here in Michigan, where we were really hard hit, people kind of have their routine. And so if I see a new patient or someone I haven't seen in a while, I ask like, what have you been doing to keep yourself safe? What feels safe to you? What feels okay to you to do? And what can I help you with in terms of your pregnancy and making you feel like you're managing your pregnancy as best as possible during this uncertain time? And patients have responded really well to that. They know exactly what what I'm talking about. And they'll say, you know what, wearing a mask makes me feel really out of breath. I'm eight months pregnant. And so I've been taking walks where there's nobody else around. So I don't have to wear a mask. And those are sort of decisions that you support and understand based on their individual situation. And I don't contradict them and say, well, you have to wear a mask. It's totally you know, unsafe not to wear a mask because we don't have all the information. Yes, right now the recommendation is to wear a mask when you're in public, but can she take a walk in her neighborhood, not any, not around anywhere else and feel like she's okay? If that makes sense to her, I think that that's appropriate. And so really trying to navigate that and giving the patients as much information as I have and not making any judgments about the decisions that they have been making really allows for that conversation to kind of open up. So can we talk a little bit about people who want to become pregnant? So how have you been framing those conversations right now? So right now, we know based on the limited evidence that we currently have that pregnant people are not at a higher risk of having severe critical illness of related to COVID-19 than non-pregnant people, which is quite reassuring. However, we have very little information, if any, right now about how COVID-19 impacts an infection of COVID-19 impacts a developing pregnancy. And so when discussing getting pregnant during the pandemic, I make sure I'm focusing on the patient and their family's values during that time. Initially, at the beginning of the pandemic in the US, things felt a lot more uncertain and much more critical. And so anecdotally, it wasn't uncommon for patients to actually volunteer that they were suspending their plans to attempt pregnancy because they were so scared about what might happen. And so in that scenario, obviously, I offered reassurance, any information I had at the time to give them about COVID-19 supported their decision, and then of course, offered them a method of contraception if they wanted one. Now over time, as the pandemic has for better or worse, sort of felt become to feel a little bit more normal for us, the conversation has shifted from patients desiring to kind of put pregnancy off or put it on pause to how can I get pregnant and stay safe during COVID that is going to be with us for the long haul, essentially. And so fortunately, many of the recommendations are the same as from before COVID. So starting to take a prenatal vitamin with folic acid one month before you try to get pregnant, seeing a 
PCP or an OBGYN uh, for preconception counseling, maybe getting some blood testing and trying to optimize your health and other aspects of your life are much the same. So what has changed based with those recommendations is that they become potentially more complicated to accomplish now that the way we live our lives is fundamentally altered. And so at the end of the day, the majority of conversations with patients that are interested in pregnancy are about their personal risk benefit profile and what that looks like in terms of pregnancy during a pandemic. What level of uncertainty regarding information are they willing to accept and operate under? And then offering them as many resources as possible to make the decision to get pregnant and then have a healthy pregnancy going forward. So I know that you had previously discussed this program called Stay Home, Stay Connected. Can you tell us more about this program? And is this program related to what you're just sharing with us? Yeah, absolutely. It's a program I'm really proud to be a part of. It was created by a team led by my very talented colleague, Dr. Alex Peel at the University of Michigan. It's an interprofessional program with a joint expertise of maternity care providers, OBs, family medicine, midwives, high-risk obstetricians, as well as behavioral health professionals and community leaders that are facilitated by trainees from all of those fields. And so we've been able to incorporate medical students into this as well, which has been really, really cool. Stay Home, Stay Connected provides a flexible resource for pregnant patients who want more support and information in pregnancy that's in addition to their prenatal care. And it offers a peer support for folks who are in a similar stage of pregnancy. And so we've incorporated this into our new prenatal care model at the University of Michigan, which is based around telehealth and less prenatal care visits. It involves telemedicine and choose your own supports like stay home, stay connected. And so we've had sessions on COVID-19 in pregnancy, such as myth busting and discussing fears and concerns, as well as what it may be like on a labor floor during the pandemic, as well as breastfeeding in the immediate postpartum period. We conduct the sessions over Zoom, and it's really been a lovely experience to be a part of. So is this program something that other providers could create or create or develop or use in their own spaces, or how does that work? Yeah, so the resources are available and Dr. Peel has uh, given me the information so that you guys could have them if you wanted to link to it. And I asked her and she would definitely be open to talking to other providers who wanted to incorporate this into their practice. Great. Maybe that's definitely something yeah, that we'll check into. So then I guess I'm curious then, could you tell us how your model of providing maternity care has changed maybe more specifically and how that's going maybe I don't, you probably don't have specific outcomes per se, but you know, how satisfaction wise, how are people feeling about that? So the model has shifted, um, at least at my institution, to primarily telehealth with between six and eight telehealth visits and then two in-person visits. But that can be adjusted based on what's needed in the pregnancy. So that's far fewer than what is typical for a full pregnancy term. And I think in terms of reception, it's been different. I think there have been plenty of folks who are very, very grateful for the opportunity to continue to have prenatal care and get prenatal care without needing to expose themselves to the healthcare system, which is a really scary place right now. And then there have been others for whom it's been anxiety provoking to have less visits and to be doing things at home, like for example, taking a blood pressure at home. And so I think that it's individualized. And my hope is that in the future, we'll be able to keep this model of care for folks for whom they prefer it, and it makes sense for their lives, and then continue to offer in-person care for those who prefer that. Given that you're changing the model right now, and just kind of based on all the changes that COVID might hopefully bring to our healthcare system in general, how do you envision the future of OB-GYN care delivery post-COVID? So I've already talked a little bit about the challenge that the pandemic has given the medical community in terms of uh, vulnerability and humility and what our place is in our patients' lives. And so I really hope that we, this is a shock to the U.S., healthcare system and that we recognize that there's a lot of gaps that we really, really need to fill in. And then additionally, I hope that continues to force the medical community to reevaluate what high quality evidence-based healthcare is and what is less so. And that we work with our payers and the greater health policy community to ensure that quality science-based care continues to be the focus rather than like a financial bottom line. And I want to be clear that I'm criticizing the general system. Everyone, including hospital systems and administrators, are trying to survive 
in a broken system that's been exposed by this pandemic. And so I hope that we don't forget that and that we work together as a community to ensure that not only businesses can survive and people can keep their jobs, but also that patients can get the care that makes the most sense for them. More specifically, I I hope that we can continue the trend of incorporating telehealth into our practices. When again, another silver lining of this pandemic is that it really forced us all to just do it. All of a sudden we were doing visits on our cell phones and it for me personally has worked out really nicely and I've really enjoyed that change. And I've heard from a lot of patients that it's been very, very convenient. And so for patients who prefer it in lieu of personal appointments, I hope that we can continue to do that because we have to remember that in-person appointments require transportation, time off work, childcare, as we've mentioned, and so many don't have access to that on a regular basis. And so using this really global tragedy to concentrate on patient care needs and what it is that makes sense for the person seeking the healthcare rather than fulfilling what the system needs and letting the patient kind of pick up those scraps, I think is what I envision and hope for the future. Two things to that. One, I just want to make a quick plug. We do have an episode we just released So that would be our May episode, episode 35, that is all about telehealth and providing trauma-informed care, especially during synchronous video appointments. And so for any of our listeners who may be feeling some discomfort related to the telehealth, we do have a previous podcast about that to help maybe make you feel a little bit more confident and comfortable with that. And then two, I think it's really interesting that you pointed out that one of the big ways of changing is really thinking about how do we make this more patient-centered and and consider the social lives of our patients. And so I'm just wondering, and again, this probably doesn't exist. Are there any outcomes that you have found that women are just as safe having video visits or telehealth visits versus coming in for every single appointment? I think right now it's too soon to, I know we're collecting that data, but I think it's too soon for us to say that. Certainly the changes that were made, for example, at my institution, the changes that were made to prenatal care were based in not only how other countries may conduct prenatal care, but also based on evidence about how kind of what the minimum requirement for prenatal care is in places where they don't have ready access. And I think it's also a really great exploration because there are places in which it's impossible to get to all those prenatal care visits. And so having multiple models, either for places that are more rural and you have to travel three hours to get to your doctor or things like that, I think that having different models and then understanding the risks of each is going to be really beneficial. I just don't think we have the data to say um, one way or another, but it's not like we pulled it out of thin air and we're like, oh, let's try this. It definitely was based on an understanding of kind of what was the minimum necessary. No, thank you for that explanation. I think it's important too for folks to know that, yeah, you didn't just create this out of nowhere and this is something that is being explored. Millions of meetings happened to make that happen. So (laughs) I'm sure (laughs) lots of heads were put together for that one. Yeah. And I think Nicole and I are both sort of excited, hopefully to see where this COVID and telehealth goes, especially with reproductive health care being in Iowa and especially uh, most of it is rural and a lot, just like the rest of the country, a lot of OB-GYN, and maternity floors are shutting down, or they had been prior to all of this. And so women were having to travel a lot farther for their health care when, you know, when they're pregnant or any type of reproductive health care, really. So it will hopefully there's a silver lining in all this. And, you know, in the future, that will be more accessible to those patients. Yeah. And from a policy perspective, it's been really interesting too, thinking about all the logistical things that need to happen. Like how do you sign documents and how do you make sure that you're protecting privacy when you're exchanging documents or images, things like that. I've been doing a lot of counseling and appointments around tubal ligation or uh, permanent contraception, as well as birth control visits. And so having those conversations and signing consents, figuring that piece out has been really interesting from a policy perspective. I also wonder too, I don't know if Megan talked about this a little bit in her telehealth episode, but Megan Gerber, but as a, I was a triage nurse for many years in OB-GYN. So that was always telehealth, did not have a video, but the telephone part. And I think that 
it's a unique aspect then that people are really willing to tell you a lot more if they're not face to face with you. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, I don't know how the video part of that will add or delete from that, but maybe there will be a little bit more openness to or comfort in describing more details or, or that type of thing. Yeah, we're offering both video and telephone, I think for that reason, because not everybody, I think one thing that's really important to remember is telehealth is great, but not everybody has the technology to be able to do that, right? Like we picture in our mind, everyone has a smartphone, but that's not just, that's not necessarily the case. Not everybody has internet or access to a printer. And so really, again, focusing on your patient's needs and their resources and what they have. And sometimes a phone call is all that you can do, or it may be what the patient's preference is, because for some reason, getting on the camera, I mean, video conferences make me nervous. So I can't imagine, you know, I had a dermatology visit recently, and I was very nervous about being on for some reason, there was like an underlying underlying anxiety about it. And so I can understand why patients might feel that way. Yeah, for sure. I think that I mean, I know that I've been in face-to-face appointments and our computers sometimes have video cameras on them. And we've been, oh, that's video camera. Can you turn that around? Like, so, um, so I think some patients are really aware of like, if it's on the internet, it might go everywhere, especially if we're asking people to show body parts or that kind of thing, or just disclosing things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think from a gynecology perspective, I don't know anyone who's doing any sort of exam or even like external lesions or anything like that via telehealth, because there are so many privacy implications. And so you certainly can describe those things. And a lot of the most common gynecological issues can be diagnosed without images. But if you feel like you need an exam, I think right now with the platforms that we have, in-person visits are the the safest way to go. So from a purely tech standpoint, obviously blood pressures are really a big part of maternal care. How are y'all doing that then via the telehealth or video meetings? So we at our institution got super, super lucky. We had a couple of donors donate a bunch of blood pressure cuffs. And then our amazing medical students were able to do contactless delivery for our current registered pregnant patients who are requiring blood pressure monitoring. And then they created a uh, instructional, I'm not sure if it was a video or, or what it was, but there was instructions that they created to give to the patients on how to do that. Our med students have been incredibly vital to our ability to communicate with patients. They made over, I think, 3,000 phone calls right at the beginning to explain to patients the new prenatal care model and what that meant and answer questions and really were very, very helpful in us being able to maintain goodwill with our patients while we were trying to figure everything out, which was nice because they got taken off rotations and they weren't, unfortunately, weren't getting to be in the hospital and do their medical school stuff. And so this was a great opportunity for them to continue to be involved in patient care and be involved in a global pandemic in a way that was safe, but also extremely helpful. Awesome. So we talked about this before, but one of the challenges with COVID-19 has been the dearth of information surrounding OB-GYN care. How have you as a provider been dealing with this lack of information or rapidly changing information when you are expected to be the expert? So no one person can do it by themselves. And I've relied heavily on my friends and colleagues who are in medicine to help support me professionally and personally during this time. Having someone that's a text or a call away to kind of bounce ideas off or read the newest COVID publication with has been really critical for me personally. I've also been extremely grateful for resources um, like the COVID dashboard that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists produces because they've been keeping the most up-to-date synthesized and then OBGYN specific recommendations immediately available to me. And as I've mentioned, candidly, it's been a really humbling experience because so much of my medical career has been about being the expert. And I definitely am not the expert. No one is the expert right now in COVID-19, in pregnancy or in OBGYN, because there's just not enough information to make an expert. And so there sometimes is this sense of omnipotence in medicine, where the doctor is the information gatekeeper and bestows it upon the patient. And so during this pandemic, while I'm definitely more potentially readily equipped to kind of read a case study about vasculopathies than my neighbor might be, I'm not more equipped to translate that or interpret it into their life. And in the way that I might be able to do you know, with a medication or a side effect or something like that. And so I have been really working to ensure that I'm honest and open about 
what information we do have, how we're currently applying that information, and what information we actually don't have. And I think that sometimes we as medical professionals feel uncomfortable with not having all the answers. And this has been a reminder that our patients' needs, they need our guidance, but ultimately they are the experts in their own lives. And we're here to help kind of translate some of that information for them. So you had mentioned the ACOG dashboard. Is that something that you can only access if you're a member or is that something that anybody could access? So ACOG is a professional membership organization for OBGYNs and it's a do-based organization, but they have made all their COVID resources completely publicly available. It's not behind a paywall. And so you're able to access those regardless of what profession you're in and for the general public. And it's a really cool dashboard because they have like kind of the latest news and all of their policy statements as well as the clinical stuff. And so I've relied heavily on that and been really, really impressed with their not only synthesizing of the data that's available, but also their dedication to patient care during this time. Yeah, I thought that they were a dues based, but I was wondering if yeah, maybe the COVID stuff was separate or how that was working. So that's good to know too for our listeners who maybe are unaware that that stuff is publicly available. So Thank you. So one of the questions we like to ask all of our guests is, you know, just kind of, you know, a little bit of a summary about everything you said, but, you know, framing it as like, how would you, what would you advise other OB-GYNs taking care of pregnant people during this time or people who want to get pregnant? So if I were to give advice to my fellow OBGYNs or other healthcare providers that are taking care of either pregnant patients or patients who are seeking to get pregnant, the first piece of that advice would be to listen more than you're talking, which can be really difficult for some of us, myself included. I'm really passionate about this field. And so I love to talk to patients about it, but making sure that you're listening more than you're talking, make sure that you're asking more questions than you're telling patients and that you are really exploring their particular needs during this time and saying, hey, does this work for you? Rather than assuming that it does. That would be my biggest piece of advice. And what I've learned through not only COVID, but also some of the work that I do in in other reproductive health care, that you get a lot farther and really get great results, both medically as well as psychosocially with your patients when you do more listening than not. I think the second piece of advice would be to lean on your colleagues and lean on your professional organizations and not feel like you have to do it alone because it can be really, really hard to feel like you have to do all of this by yourself and be that expert. There are no COVID experts in OBGYN right now, not that I know of. And so we all are doing the best that we can and leaning on each other for that. And then remembering why we're doing what we're doing, which is to support our patients through this really, really tough time. I'm just curious if you've seen this, but I've been reading some reports And I don't know how evidence-based these are, but I've just been seeing things where folks are choosing to do more home deliveries now. And I'm just wondering if that's a trend that you've also been seeing. So I, in my practice personally, have not noticed that trend. It certainly has been something that we've discussed both in visits as well as in Stay Home, Stay Connected. Patients have mentioned it and said that, you know, they thought about it, but then they definitely chose being in the hospital because they knew that that was the safest place from the evidence to have a delivery, which we know is unequivocally true. We know that even despite COVID, having a hospital birth is the safest way to have a, a birth. That doesn't mean that you can't have a birth plan. That doesn't mean that you can't do a lot of the things that you want to do, but being in the hospital or in a certified birth center is safe. And ACOG has put out some policy and recommendations about that. We in Michigan, you know, we have a significant population of patients who either live in rural areas or who desire to have home deliveries. And again, I think that this is a can be for a lot of OBGYNs a knee-jerk reaction where we are very, very nervous about that because our job is to fix the worst things that can happen, right? I always say that if a delivery is going to happen quickly, you don't need me there. But I need to be there because something really, really dangerous could potentially happen. So it makes us all nervous. But again, patients are the experts in their own lives. And I would much rather have an open communication with a midwife or a patient who is planning on birthing at home that is non-judgmental and compassionate and empathetic, then cutting that off completely and leaving that patient on their own. And I have found that that has been really successful. We've had a couple of transfers of home births because they've been complicated. And oftentimes it's a really stressful time and they don't want to see the obstetrician if they don't have to. And I've had patients send me thank you notes saying, thank you for not making me feel judged when I came to the hospital. And I think that that's really critical to keeping that um, communication open. But I haven't personally noticed it. 
Yeah, thanks. That's a good one. You know, the other issue has also been this visitor policy. So I've seen sort of a kind of a wide variety. So no visitor at all. And then so I think some women are choosing to give birth at home because they don't want to be alone or without their support person. And then other, a lot of places I feel like have gone to just one support person. And then, so they haven't been able to have a doula. How has your institution been dealing with that? And and how have they been communicating those visitor policies with patients? So like everywhere else, I think this has been a struggle for OBGYNs and for labor floors all over the country is trying to figure out what makes the most sense. We know that having you know continuous labor support is incredibly important to folks that are in labor. We also know how COVID is transmitted and trying to keep the floor, which often has people walking around on it who are in early labor or going to get food or things like that is potentially not safe. And so we have worked through a lot of different policies and a lot of different variations of the visitor policy. And we currently are allowing one visitor for everybody. And that's to kind of keep it uniform, regardless of whether you're COVID positive or not. And are asking that that one visitor sort of stay in the room as much as possible. If they leave, we have a mask policy at our institution anyway. So everybody in the hospital is wearing a mask. And so that hasn't been uh, too much of an issue. So, but definitely, you know, we were communicating that through letters, through our prenatal care visits, as well as through our support groups. And it was received in much the way that you described, which is a lot of fear, a lot of concern and a lot of angst about not being able to have the people that they wanted there, there. And we can say as much as we want, well, we'll be there for you. We will support you. But I think patients understand that that is not the same as having their personal support people there. And so that's been, for me, one of the more heartbreaking parts of this, because I understand both sides and I understand why the regulations and policies need to be in place, but also how heartbreaking and and devastating it may be to not have the people that you want there with, you know, during one of the most important events of your life. How has care changed then during delivery and afterwards? You know, both Stephanie, I can speak to, you know, you have a kid and I did maternity care too. And you're in there, the nurse is in there all the time, checking blood pressures, checking, 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 checking things. Is that still the case or has even post-delivery care changed? It stayed mostly the same at my institution. Our nurses are incredible and amazing and have been unflinchingly dedicated to quality patient care. Again, we're all masked at all times and we ask that the patient, if they are COVID positive, can, you know, wears a mask when there's somebody in the room. And we have been as gentle as we can at, at discussing this and working with patients. And patients have been really understanding as well. They get it and they want to stay safe and they want to keep their provider safe. But not much has changed in the way of what is actually needed from a medical standpoint post-delivery because you need those blood pressures, you need those fundal checks, you need the bleeding checks. We need to take the temperature of the baby and the blood sugars and all of that stuff. And so that piece hasn't really changed all that much. How does your communication change or what type of things you talk differently about if you do have a COVID positive pregnant person or person delivering versus non-COVID? Talking to the patient or talking to the team or? Both, I guess. So for as the obstetrician, I'm working with mom and baby while baby's inside. And so there are different recommendations based on sort of whether they're asymptomatic COVID or whether they have active COVID symptoms, they need oxygen support, things like that. So we are, are managing it from a medical standpoint based on what they need physically. And then we in, have involved pediatrics in terms of the, the aftercare with the baby. And there's different recommendations from different organizations about separating mom from baby or having baby be taken care of by mom for 14 days. And that is information that because I'm an obstetrician, I've definitely kind of leaned on my pediatric colleagues to help me navigate that conversation and those recommendations because I'm sort of trying to manage the the pre-birth part of it all. And so I, you know, I, I don't know that my conversations with COVID uh, positive patients have changed all that much unless they are super sick. And then in that scenario, they were talking about how to keep them as safe as possible during labor. And I just want to add that my experience of taking care of uh, COVID positive patients directly on the labor floor is somewhat limited. We have not had a, a large prevalence in our particular county in Michigan. And so we've been fortunate that our patients have been mostly well. We've dealt with the policies around COVID, but the actual need we haven't cared for all that much. It's only been a few patients. How have you or your colleagues 
how has that conversation looked about like transmitting COVID to the newborn? I think that's a really tough, it's a tough question for me to answer. I think it's not directly in my clinical wheelhouse. And it's something that I obviously have been talking to patients about, but using the pediatric recommendations. It's been extremely difficult to have conversations with new moms about, hey, you're going to have a baby and pediatrics recommends or these organizations recommend immediate separation. But there are these other organizations that don't recommend that. And so that's been a really tough place because you don't want to contradict what your colleagues are saying or what other organizations are saying, but you also want to make sure that you're giving space to the patient to have understandable feelings about those recommendations. And they need to be able to make that decision for themselves. And so they, you know, very early on, we talked with our whole obstetrics team, as well as the pediatrics about what would happen if patients declined separation. And we made sure that there wasn't going to be any consequences to that. And that was really important to me, as well as a lot of my other um, obstetrician colleagues, because we knew how difficult it would be for a lot of patients. And again, they need to make these decisions for themselves. And for an asymptomatic mom who got tested just because she's on the labor floor, I think that that would be a really difficult decision to make to say, yeah, take my kid for, you know, my brand new baby for 14 days. And I understand that. And so that's been that along with the visitor policy has been the toughest piece personally and professionally for me to navigate and to make sure that we're balancing patient needs, patient desires with true safety concerns. So are you as, or your colleagues, are you the ones telling the patients that they're COVID positive, and then also the ones sort of having to to say like these are the the recommendations and policies, or is that you know the pediatrician? Yeah, so you may not have heard, but testing in this country is kind of a mess. Um, <laughs> so really? people, yeah, exactly. Um, so people have been showing up COVID positive in a lot of different ways. Either uh, we've gotten a ton of transfers from the Detroit metro area where the real outbreak was hitting early on in Michigan. And so they may have already known this and had all these conversations previously. We have a testing policy where if you are getting, and this has evolved over time, but basically if you are getting any sort of procedure or being admitted to the labor floor, you're offered COVID testing and it's recommended that you have COVID testing. And that's based on what the provider maybe needs to wear if we need an N95 in the OR versus if we just need a regular face mask. Also was informing visitor policies for other procedures in our hospital. And so it's been kind of a mishmash of things. I trying to think, I don't think I've told anybody that didn't already know that they were COVID positive. So I haven't had that experience. And we've been trying really hard to convey all of these policies beforehand. Like if you are COVID positive, if you happen to get this, what might happen to preempt it. And it, that hasn't been weird because that's what's on everybody's mind. Like what happens if this happens? What happens if I get it? And so for the most part, I think patients at least know that something like that has been going on. And we've been sending out letters and communications as much as possible as well. Yeah, thank you. I think what I was going to say earlier on is probably very similar to just every, all this changing stuff. But I think Nicole and I both have clinical backgrounds in OB-GYN. So we were able to speak to a lot of things or like have a basic understanding of what occurs. But now with COVID, it's like, this is all new information to us. So for our listeners, we apologize if some of this is like, yeah, yeah, I know all this. (laughs) So it's hard to know like what our listeners know at this point. I think it's also very like institution or hospital based. Right. Um, Policies are very, and geographic. So there are places that haven't been as hard hit as other places. I know, you know, the way we operate is very different than some, you know, a Manhattan hospital operates or a a rural hospital in a place that has less than, you know, a thousand cases. And so I, I think that there's a variety of policies. And that's been one of the things that's been really helpful for me is having a network of a community of colleagues around the country. And I text them and say, does this sound right to you? Like, does this make sense? Like, what are you doing surrounding this particular policy? And some people will say, no, that sounds bonkers. Or other people will say, no, that's exactly what we're doing. Or that's a more permissive policy than we have. And so being able to bounce that around and, I'm really, really fortunate to have a super supportive, super patient-centered department that I work with. And our administrators are very, very focused on making this not only safe and evidence-based, but also patient-centered. And so, you know, any concerns that I've brought to them have been um, addressed, which has been nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't, do you have any sort of tips about 
kind of advocating for patients in this time based on these policies. So I can see that, you know, like you said, your institution is really patient-centered or attempts to be. And maybe you haven't had to do that advocacy work, but do you have any tips, you know, just for our listeners who maybe think that their institution's policies are, you know, more stringent than needed or not patient-centered enough? Yeah, I mean, this has been a ongoing conversation that I've been having because one of my biggest passions is advocacy, not only legislatively, but sort of within institutions. And I'm very interested in organizational politics. I think... COVID has been really tough because there's been, unfortunately, some places that have not handled this well and have tried to sort of cover it up. And, you know, we've heard of the news about different places not doing the right thing for whatever reason. And so I think that that's a different scenario than just a misguided policy. And general tips for advocacy with administration, I think, are bring the evidence that's that you know, and that's easily digestible. Don't just hand them like, you know, a couple of New England journal papers, because it's not going to work, you know, like you have to have it digested. I love one pagers, I kind of create like a little info sheet that's super easy to read that I just hand to people so that they have it on their desk, and they're able to reference the old adage of you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar is really true, even though it's really, really hard. So I like to think of myself as sort of a very calm bull where I just keep pushing and keep pushing, but I don't get angry. I don't snort at anybody. I just keep pushing in as kind of way as possible. And patient stories are really important as well. Getting, you know, you want to get permission from your patients to use those stories, but often they're very willing. And bringing that to people who are non-clinical is super important, not only legislatively, but also in your administrations. Because we as clinicians think about everything in a data numbers way, But the rest of the world, the human brain actually thinks in a much more anecdotal way. And so having these patient stories of how this policy has impacted, I think has been really, can be really helpful. And know that you can make a difference. I think that's the biggest thing that I talk to people about is like some people just feel like there's this big behemoth of an administration in this giant institution and that you can't make an impact and you really, really can just know that you're most often playing the long game and not the short game which can be tough for COVID because everything feels like the short game, but you're making meaningful change in relationships as you advocate. And speaking of administration and administrators, have you found that during this time they seem more open to suggestions or I don't know if you'd call it a demeanor, but that, yeah, maybe their openness has changed or their willingness to take in new ideas that maybe this is a prime time to advocate and and feel like you have a space to be? I know from my personal experience, I've only, you know, I'm only at two different institutions and both have been extremely willing to listen and having weekly meetings and town halls and talking to providers and wanting to know what's actually happening kind of on the ground with patient care. And so I feel extremely fortunate. I have unfortunately heard horror stories from some of my colleagues across the country of providers being completely shut out of any of these decision-making conversations and had quite a bit of trouble challenging them or um, asking questions. And so so I think that it spans the gamut of how it works. And I think this is one of the tough things of kind of like knowing who you're employed by and knowing what will work and what doesn't work. And it's even more difficult for those who are in private practice and having to balance their own practice policies with the, in, the multiple hospitals that they may be utilizing for deliveries or, or surgeries. So it's been, I, I mean, I think it's very, very complex issue right now and a uh, very political issue and obviously very fraught. And just anecdotally, you know, when you talk about like your friends network, what would you say has been a central theme or something that you have found that a lot of folks are struggling with? And then how are you all helping each other with that? I think we're struggling with a lot. Like everybody, this is scary. So personally, my husband is non-medical, and so he had a really hard time when we were in the thick of it here in Michigan. I volunteered to go outside my specialty to be deployed to a field hospital if that was necessary, kind of dive right in, which is exactly what I need to do. That's There's no way that I wouldn't volunteer for that, but that was really hard for him. He ultimately supported me, but we had a lot of conversations about that. So navigating sort of family fears around providers and what we are doing and the risk that we're putting ourselves in. I think the isolation, oftentimes doctors are very social creatures, you know, like we hang out in nurse stations and we like hang out together and not being able to do that has been really, really tough. Work has changed in a lot of ways. 
And so managing the mental health sort of pressure with that has been rough. And then I think the systemic issues that we've talked about, those who have had really tough systems issues have felt kind of beaten down by that in addition to the pandemic. And so we all have ups and downs and we kind of reach out when we can. And there's a lot of venting, a lot of group chat venting and just like, there's no solution to this, but I just need to get it out there and put it out there. And that's been really helpful. So many of us have helped each other get hooked up with teletherapy. I highly recommend, you know, using some sort of teletherapy service to work with this. I know a lot of platforms have been offering sort of free trials for healthcare providers and have been really willing to work with us just specifically on the pandemic. I know for my husband, he went back to therapy just to talk about the pandemic and that was super helpful. So just allowing ourselves to grieve and feel the things that we're feeling and make sure that we're all kind of keeping each other together. I really thank you for sharing that because I mean that I feel like the central theme of this episode is just this vulnerability, humility, and I think it's wonderful that you talked about the importance of having a network and reaching out to folks, whether they're they're mental health professionals or just other professionals like yourselves or whoever that support is and just making sure folks know that they can do that and that it's a great resources and that as usual, we're not alone, right? So often we can feel like we're alone in our issues and especially in a situation with the pandemic where we're not alone. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And just to add, you know, it made me think of something else is turning off is the other really important piece. Like I think for many of us, you to know this, turning off can be really hard when you're such a high producer. And so we were on this COVID schedule where it was like two weeks on, two weeks off, which a lot of institutions were doing. And the two weeks that I was off kind of in quarantine, I was feeling so useless and so down about that. And I needed people to remind me like, you know, you need like you're under a lot of pressure, you're under a lot of stress just sitting on your couch. And so it's okay to just sit on your couch. I've tweeted a lot less. I've been on a lot less Twitter lately because I need to turn it off. It's too much right now. And so allowing ourselves to do that as well and helping each other feel like that's okay has been super important. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, the part about being off. Because I think all of us, like, you know, whatever our situations are, either at home or at work, it's hard to turn off with anything related to COVID right now because that's everywhere. And then you also, I think, as like what you said, you're a helper. I think we're, you know, a lot of us, that's what we would consider ourselves. And we would just want to get out there and do things, but it's not necessarily the best for us or the people around us either. And you may have mentioned this earlier, but you had talked about how meeting uh, folks where they're at. And I'm just wondering what concern have pregnant folks been having the most? Like, what do you see is the most popular, quote unquote, popular concern that you feel like you spend a lot of time discussing? And then how do you break that down? I think the most prevalent has been what is my delivery going to look like? What is the labor floor going to look like? Am I going to be able to have a partner? Because remember, these policies are changing like hourly. And so no one can predict when they're going to go into labor. Will I be able to get an induction if I need to? If I need a C-section, what's that gonna, what is that going to look like? And so really walking through what's important in their birth plan and their, you know, ideal birth story and trying to make sure that they feel supported in that and that we are hearing them and understanding them and also giving them the information and the reasons why some of these policies that seem less than ideal are in place and trying to quell some of the fears that they have about COVID in pregnancy and on the labor floor. And, you know, I had a a bunch of patients actually ask me like, what are you doing? You're going from room to room. How are you not picking it up and like bringing it from one person to me, which was like a really important question, but so brave. You know, I I thought to myself afterwards, like, that's a really hard question for a patient to answer. Like, how are you going to make sure that you're not going to infect me? Right. And that's, Again, talking about those power dynamics, that's flipping that power dynamic. And I was so impressed and so happy that she answered that and that she asked that. And so now I've incorporated that into all of my counseling so that patients don't have to ask that, even though I know that they're probably wondering. Talking about gowning and gloving and taking those off and how we don and doff. And I was like, I watched a million videos on it. I promise I'm practiced. Just things like that. My style is to sort of inject some humor and levity into it as best as I can while maintaining the obvious seriousness of the the life event. And that's, I think the biggest concern is like, what is my delivery going to look like? 
That's interesting. Yeah, the focus on the delivery versus being pregnant part. And then I think that's great that you've now looped that into your conversation. Is there anything else that you've naturally now just loop into your conversations because you find that it's a concern? I automatically acknowledge that this is tough and is likely not their ideal situation. And I apologize for that. Not that it's my fault, but I say, you know, I am so sorry that you are not going to have or may not have the birth that you want or have all these extra stressors on the birth or your pregnancy. I know this is, you know, I've had so many people say, this is not how I wanted my pregnancy to end. I wanted to have a baby shower. I, you know, wanted to go to Ikea and shop for all the baby things and I can't do that. And really allowing space and then offering your condolences for the loss of part of a vision that they may have had. Yeah, that's really... That's a really good message, I think, to share. I agree. It's so easy to just say like, well, the important thing is you have a healthy baby and a healthy mom and we're doing everything we can to protect you and it's going to be okay, right? It's so easy to say that. But what's not as easy is to say, yes, I hear you. And that's really, really tough. And I'm so sorry that that you're feeling that way and leaving it at that. Yeah. And that's really what you're talking about is a big difference between being sympathetic versus empathetic. And coming from a place of empathy is going to do so many more wonders than just saying, you know, trying to silver line it. Well, at least, or, you know, so I think that that's great to really keep this frame of empathy and how you incorporate empathy into your conversations, I think is great. And I think it's important to make clear, at least the people that are listening, that I struggle with this sometimes. Like I'll have a patient who's super, super sick and needs all of this medical intervention, but like wants some music in her delivery room. And for me, I'm like thinking, I need to keep you alive. I'm not worried about your soundtrack, right? And that's a, sort of an a, exaggerated example, but I have those initial sort of knee-jerk reactions as well. But what I truly really try to do and don't, you know, I often succeed, but sometimes fail is try to check those and say, actually, that's what's important to me but that may not be her priority list. And sometimes I actually discuss that with patients sort of, if there's a conflict, I discuss that openly. I'm like, here are my list of priorities. And I, the way I'm understanding is that these are your list of priorities. And what I want to try to do is mesh those. And I think, you know, I've never had an issue with patients seeing that and they can understand why my priorities might be a little bit different than theirs. But it's not an easy thing to do. The empathy thing is not an easy thing to do, especially when you're worried about somebody. No, I definitely agree. But I also think it's great to have that quick split second to step back and say, is this my priority or their priority? I think that's a great in the moment check. What's my stuff and what's their stuff? And yeah, that's a good basic foundational pandemic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. side. <laughs> right. Yeah. Life, life tip. What is my stuff? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I could talk to you all day about some of this stuff, but in the interest of time, I think we should probably ask our car information question. So usually I, so I think we kind of talked about this, but, you know, usually Nicole and I are focused on the communication aspects and we've kind of go gone over a lot of things that aren't necessarily just about communication. But do you have any resources that are, you've personally been using or do you have any that you would recommend for providers to find trustworthy and up-to-date information regarding pregnancy and COVID? I know you mentioned ACOG. COVID's dashboard, as well as CDC guidance. So what else would you recommend? Those are the two that I've been really relying on. I found them to be very helpful with patients. You know, sometimes I print stuff out and hand it to patients. And there's so much misinformation out there right now that my practice as the physician, I've been sort of reading the source data as best as I can, and then looking at the latest recommendations from these two sources, and then giving that out. And that's been my practice, because if I try to incorporate too many, it's too hard to synthesize, it's too hard to do and provide reliable information. So those are really the two that I've been using. I've also noticed, unfortunately, I don't know if you have any colleagues have that have been using other sources or or been reluctant to use CDC guidelines. I know, shockingly, just on social media, I have a lot of friends who are nurses, physicians, assistants, physicians, nurse practitioners, you know, the gamut and have been sharing some 
other recommendations that aren't based on the CDC or even things that are saying that the CDC can't be trusted right now. Have you sort of had these conversations with your colleagues about any of this or just people that you are maybe are in your social network who are providers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a period of time where I was sort of like, what's going on with the CDC? And I I think we all had that. And I continue to have questions and concerns about the way that our current, you know, federal administration is handling the the COVID pandemic. And obviously, the CDC is sort of an arm of the federal government. And so I don't uh, blame people for having sort of issues with that or concerns about that. But it's what we have. It's what we've got. The WHO has been really helpful. It's not always specific to kind of the way that the U.S. practices medicine, but that has been a helpful kind of back check for me with the CDC because they're a similar public health organization. And so if the CDC says something and I'm like, that sounds kind of weird, I'll go to the WHO and I definitely trust them and their recommendations. But because the CDC is much more kind of U.S. focused and that's where I practice medicine, that's what I've been using. I think it's hard if people don't trust the CDC and that sort of that trust has been eroded, it's difficult to bring them back. And so using ACOG resources, or just going back to the studies that we have, or the data that we have has been what I've used. But definitely, I've heard similar things that you have. I think it. I'm hoping that maybe it's more of a, a squeaky wheel situation rather than kind of a majority of people. And it's what we've got. It's not an ideal answer, but it's what we've got. And it's what we can use. And again, in a situation where we have not a lot of information, stuff is changing constantly, we have to do the best that we can. And as clinicians and as people with common sense, we can sort of use that information. I was just talking to my husband about this mask recommendation. Like, are masks going to prevent COVID from spreading? Probably not. But are they probably going to help? Yes, because if I sneeze, my snot doesn't go everywhere, right? Like that just is the way it works with the mask. And so it probably helps a little bit. And so using common sense along with those recommendations, just in my social network also has been useful. So what about with patients? If say a patient comes in with something that is inaccurate, how are you, what is your communication approach with them to kind of bridge that, what their belief is, if it isn't founded in evidence versus your belief or the CDC or the ACOG guideline? How are you reconciling that difference? So this is fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you frame it, a a problem that's not uncommon in obstetrics. There's a lot of kind of belief and misunderstanding and practice in obstetrics that deviates from the evidence that we know is quality. And so I have a lot of experience talking to patients about things that may not be evidence-based and and how they approach that. And I think that first figuring out what the risk level is, right? And what is, you know, if someone says to me, I don't want an epidural because it slows down my labor, I can easily say, hey, listen, that actually isn't evidence-based. I can see why you may think that. And it's totally fine if you don't want an epidural, but just so you know, it's not actually borne out in sort of the numbers versus I don't want my baby to have vitamin K. That is a much higher risk sort of choice. And in that scenario, I may approach it with, again, humility and say, I understand, tell me why that is something that you don't want. What is that your concerns are with vitamin K? What is it your concerns are with COVID or with the CDC and trying to understand and again, meet them where they are rather than me assuming the reason is because they think shots are bad or they think vitamin K is sometimes people have really weird. They've been told really weird things that they believe to be true. And it's very easy to correct those if you just kind of ask them why that is. The other piece that I always do is I always ask permission to talk to them about it. I don't want to be that person that kind of throws information at people that they don't want. And so I'll say, hey, listen, I have concerns about this decision that you're making. Would it be all right if I talk to you about what my concerns are? And 99% of the time, the patient says yes. And that may be in part due to the power dynamic that's there. But at least I'm trying to check that a little bit. And a few times I've had patients say, no, I don't want to hear it. I say, okay. And then I'll say, can I at least offer you a resource where you could read it if you wanted to and give them kind of a second pass at that? That's great. Thank you. I also wanted to personally put in a plug, not put putting this on you, Jen, but we had Rebecca Decker on a few episodes ago. Um, she is the founder of Evidence-Based Birth, which, you know, does have some, she does have some good free COVID resources. I know like a doula, a virtual doula, things like that. So, and then also, you know, kind of synthesizing the, what's out there on COVID-19. So looking at the original 
research sources. And I know also just like PubMed and a lot of journals are making any kind of research related to COVID for free. So usually a provider might have access to some of those, that evidence. But right now, I think if you do want to look at the original source, you can. I really just, I appreciate you saying like, go to the original source, because I think we might have listeners who are not necessarily trusting the CDC right now. So I just wanted to put that out there in case we do have listeners who kind of fight back about that. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, you going to the references to any policy. So if you don't trust the CDC, they've at least accumulated all the primary sources, right? And so you can use that to go to them. And for me, it's been really important to read the primary source, like the paper that came out from New York that said 30% of labor patients in this one, these couple of institutions were COVID positive, but asymptomatic. 30% were COVID positive, asymptomatic. That's the face that I need to, Nicole. I like freaked out. But then you read and you see that the N was 47 like it was just 47 people. So 30% of that, it's a pretty small number. And how are you going to base whole like institutional policies based on that? And so I think reading that primary source is definitely really important before you make any decision. But I also want to acknowledge that there's like 400 papers that come out every day. So it's really difficult to do that. And making sure that you recognize the difference between a study and expert opinion. There's been so much expert opinion that's just like, for lack of a better way to describe it, a bunch of senior people saying, hey, this is what I think is going to happen, which is not not valuable, but it's also not necessarily scientific study. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end today? I just wanted to thank you both for taking on this massively important topic about communication and reproductive health and having me on. And I'm so excited to listen to all the episodes and see where this goes. Thank you. Thank you. We, Yeah. Again, we know that this is a crazy busy time for our providers. And so we never know when our episode's going to be or who's going to be on it. So we really appreciate that you are flexible and, and we'll hope to get this out as soon as we can. Yeah. And you're, you know, using your two weeks off for good here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.